What great singing and uh, just a very rich, theologically saturated, doctrinally sound hymns that we sang. Thank you, music team, for leading us in that. We want to continue our worship now as we turn to the book of Acts and the 16th chapter. <clears throat> Acts chapter 16. And this morning we're going to be looking at uh, verses 11 through 15. 11 through 15, Acts 16, 11 through 15. So if you please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts 16, 11 through 15, this is God's word. <clears throat> so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside, to the, uh, outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. After she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Lord, we just pray that you would be glorified by the reading of your word and that you would <clears throat> instruct our hearts this morning, that we would have hearts that are softened to your truth, that you would change our hearts, that you would conform our hearts uh, more so into the image of your Son. And Lord, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, that you would do a mighty work in their heart, that you would <clears throat> transform uh, their heart by the amazing power of your gospel and your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> Excuse me. One of my all-time favorite narrative accounts in the holy and inspired scriptures is that of Mary of Bethany anointing the feet of our Lord in Mark chapter 14. Just a couple of days before Jesus rides in uh, to Jerusalem on what some have called his triumphal entry, just over a week before he was crucified on a Roman cross, Mark writes, as he was reclining at a tab at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and costly is right. When we preached on this text a couple of years ago, we figured that this ointment, this perfume, and this alabaster jar would have been valued at about $35,000 today. It's very likely passed down from generation uh, to generation in Mary's family. Uh, she came with this alabaster flask full of uh, pure nard, this uh, perfume. And what did she do with this perfume? What did she do with it? Did she take the cork out of the perfume and dab a little bit on the sides of his neck? Did, did she drop a couple drops on his, on his wrists or on his feet? No, in a, in a demonstration of genuine devotion, sincere sacrifice, Mark says she broke the flask, poured it over his head, all the contents offered up to her Lord in one fell swoop. And remember, Mark says, as soon as this happened, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? 
Apparently, it was a waste to spend this on Jesus. They said, for this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her, Mark says. John singles out Judas as being the primary antagonist, yet Matthew and Mark make it perfectly clear who the they was that scolded her here. He says, and when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. And they were saying, why this waste? All of the disciples rebuked this woman. To which Jesus replied, leave her alone. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And that's right. I mean, uh, here we are, almost 2,000 years later, with the same Mary of Bethany introducing our message this morning, this woman who, in the midst of all these pious and really sanctimonious men, these esteemed followers and learners of our Lord Jesus Christ, was proven to be the one who stood out as, as the example of true discipleship. She's the one who is demonstrating true faith, She's the one who was demonstrating true devotion and, and true dedication. She's the one who showed true love for her Lord. She's the one who, who recognizes his incomparable worth when put up against the things of this world. Mary was the true follower at this moment, a week before Jesus was buried, and, and not just in word only, but in deed as well. And in turn, uh, her example provided our Lord with another opportunity to manifest the love and compassion of the Father the Father has for his precious daughters. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me, he says. We see another uh, example of that compassion today, don't we, in our text Yahweh extending his amazing grace, his abundant mercy, his steadfast love to this woman named Lydia, allowing her to be an example for many generations of both men and women alike and breaking many cultural and societal norms in the process. And he did so, of course, providentially. Remember last week, Paul and Silas, after having separated from Mark and Barnabas, were going through the cities of Syria, Cilicia, through Lystra, Derby, and Iconium going through the region of Phrygia, Galatian, were then uh, forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go into Asia. And he said, no, not Asia. Then Luke says, when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So he said, no, not there either. So they pass through Mycenae, they go to Troas, where God provides some instruction. Paul has a vision of a Macedonian man who says, come over here to Macedonia and help us. So Luke says in verse 11, to Macedonia they went. Setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, excuse me, and from there to Philippi which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Now, for those keeping track here, I want you to notice that's a two-day voyage from Troas to Philippi. However, on their return trip, which is detailed in Acts chapter 20, 
Luke says this, These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, which means two days there from Troas to Philippi, including staying in Samothrace overnight, but it took five days to go back from Philippi to Troas. That's more than double the time. Which means Luke is displaying for us yet again the unmistakable providence of God or his sovereign orchestration of all events, all details. Every detail of every life, of of every one of his creatures all take place according to his sovereign will. And all to accomplish his sovereign purpose, all resulting and culminating in his sovereign pleasure and ultimate glorification. This is what he meant when he said in Isaiah 46, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done. That's divine sovereignty, namely that he reigns authoritatively over all things. The end has already been determined. Just like the beginning was already determined. Along with everything in between is already determined. But, but his, providence, his providence comes in the next verse here. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. He accomplishes his sovereign will and his purpose through his divine providence. And we see that here in Acts 16, right? The the Lord spared no efforts in getting these guys there right on time, right when they had to be there. And I think R.C. Sproul's words are worth repeating here. We've quoted him a couple of times here. He says, there are no maverick molecules in the universe where God is sovereign. If there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. But God is sovereign over every single molecule. And he is accomplishing his purposes through his dominion over every cell as well as their functionality, including right here in verse 11 where he even uses the winds and the waves to push this boat across the Aegean Sea uh, to get these guys to Samothrace at at the exact moment they needed to be there and to Philippi at the exact moment they needed to be here, to this specific place at this specific time, to communicate a specific message to a specific people. It always happening as right as it should have. And as, as the verses unfold, we'll see why this ha- had to be here, why the Spirit said, no, don't go to Asia, why the Spirit said, no, don't go to Bithynia, how it all relates to this woman, Lydia. And this should be a, this should be a tremendous comfort to all of us this morning here. I often think about the truths of God's providence and I'm blown away with the reality that all things in this life are under his sovereign rule and reign. While it seems, it may seem like things down here on earth are full of chaos and confusion, while we may be tempted to despair in seasons of sickness and affliction, I, 
find tremendous solace in, in knowing that not only is the Lord not aloof to what's going on in this world and in our lives, but ultimately everything is going exactly according to plan. And it will continue to go according to plan all the way till the end of the world and for all of eternity thereafter. The Lord of the heavens and the earth is absolutely sovereign over and in control of all things. And a lot of folks get uh, offended at this. They don't like it. But their being offended doesn't in any way alter the fact that it's the truth. It really only makes for a miserable earthly existence filled with kicking against the goads of reality. Just the Lord is sovereign. This is, the sovereignty and, and providence are on full display here in Acts chapter 16. And in light of all this, I think we ought to give consideration to how these truths relate to our lives individually, how in his divine providence he has sovereign, uh, sovereignly orchestrated all the events in both time and space to bring you here at this very moment, to have you sitting right here this morning listening to the revelation of his divine attributes and character. You ever think about that? You're exactly where he wants you to be right now. You don't actually think you're here by accident, do you? You don't think you're here by chance, do you? No, he's got you right here with us today, either being informed by his word this morning, being conformed by his word this morning, maybe even transformed through the preaching of his word this morning. Perhaps today is the day of your salvation. Or... Maybe he has brought you here for the sole purpose of providing yet another example for him to say, you heard my gospel loud and clear over and over and over again, and yet you rejected me over and over and over again. Now you'll be judged for your unbelief. So let me ask you this morning, which one of those are you? Which one are you? I pray that you are one who is either being transformed, conformed, or informed by his word. Certainly transformed. I pray you're one of those who would be transformed by his gospel today if you have never been. Uh, Divine providence brought these guys from uh, uh, Troas to Samothrace to Neapolis up to Philippi, and divine providence brought you to this very place to hear about it. And that's just how it is. Now, Luke said at the end of verse 12, they spent some days in Philippi, right? Before that, he gave us a little uh, taste of what the city was all about. He said this was a leading city, and that's true. This was a leading city of the Roman Empire. It was a very industrious and affluent city, one which abounded with natural resources, copper, gold, silver. It had very fertile soil, which means there was a lot of money flowing around the city. There's a lot of money in Philippi. Not only that, but it was a Roman colony. This will prove to be a, an important fact in our time next week when we'll elaborate a bit more on it. But basically, a Roman colony was like having a mini Rome implanted in another geographical location, or as Warren Wiersbe called it, Rome away from Rome. Uh, meaning, though on foreign soil, 
<clears throat> Romans were to act as though they were in Rome, and in turn, they would be given all the benefits of living in Italy herself. Citizens of those colonies were exempt from certain taxes. They were exempt from certain punishments. They had the right to appeal uh, to the emperor. And of course, the privilege of having formal Roman citizenship in this ultra-cosmopolitan utopia of the world during this time. It was a a socioeconomic privilege to be a Roman citizen uh, for sure, but more on that next week. That's Philippi in a nutshell, okay? It's very influential, very prosperous, very upscale, but something was lacking, okay? Look at verse 13. On that Sabbath day, Luke says, we went outside to the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. Okay, so we see Luke again includes himself in the we. And he says, we came into the city. And in typical Pauline fashion, they likely looked for the nearest synagogue in the area, only they didn't find one. Why? Well, because there was no synagogue in the city that we know of. There's never one spoken of. It's probably because there was a very, very small number of Jews in Philippi at the time, though the city was very religious. There were many different gods in Philippi that could be worshipped, but there was no synagogue. Instead, the true worshipers or the worshipers of the true God went to gatherings like this one by the riverside. Uh, the first century Jewish historian Josephus says this was very common back then, quote, it was customary for Jews and Gentile god to meet in the open air by a river or by the sea when a synagogue was not available. So there you go. Besides this, we know that it took 10 Jewish men to constitute a synagogue, and yet we hear of no men mentioned on this day. <clears throat> Instead, Luke tells us it was just a bunch of women who had congregated by the river to pray. These Philippian women, which notice Luke says they sat down and spoke with. Now, if we remember back to the earthly ministry of our Lord, maybe 20 or so years before this particular Riverside occasion, we'll remember what the customs were with regard to Jewish men uh, conversing with non-Jewish women, or even Jewish women for that matter, any member of the opposite sex really. Jesus, talking with a woman of Samaria, more commonly known as the woman at the well in John chapter 4, with all grace and gentleness, yet speaking truth in love, says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He then revealed to her this adulterous, half-breed, really second-class citizen of a woman who, because of her social shame, had to draw water by herself, his true identity. As she said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak with you am he. Just then, John says, his disciples come back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But why? Why did they marvel? Why were they astonished that he was talking with a woman? Well, as one commentator said, in Judaism, it was believed that for a rabbi to speak with a woman was at best a waste of time, and at worst, a distraction from studying the Torah, which could lead to eternal damnation. You talk to a woman... 
eternally damned. <clears throat> there were sayings of the rabbis like, a man shall not talk with a woman in the street, not even with his own wife. And especially, especially not with another woman on account of what men may say. They didn't think too much of women at all, really. Uh, long-standing tradition records the head of Jewish households starting each morning with this prayer, I thank you, God, that I am not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. This was the culture that Jesus was coming into. And yet, Jesus not only talks with women, including this promiscuous woman, but what does he say to her? He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. He spent much of his earthly ministry concealing his true identity to many people along the way. He plainly tells this woman who it was that was saying to her, give me a drink. He would end up giving her that living water that springs up to eternal life. Another woman comes, suffering for years, doctors rob her of all her money. She says, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I will be made well. She then makes her move, and she's very likely offending everyone around her, but she reaches out, she touches that garment, and rather than Jesus turning around to rebuke her, he says to her, take heart, daughter. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. He then goes on to raise a young girl who had just died, taking her by the hand, reuniting her soul with her body. Cultural norms be damned. Our, our Lord fellowshiped with women. He talked with women. He miraculously healed women, even with his gracious and compassionate touch. And you know what? He had women who supported his ministry. Luke 8, 2 says he and the disciples traveled with Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out and Joanna, wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. Not only did he not devalue women like those in Judaism and even the false religions and the cults of our day, but he made them essential partners in carrying out his earthly ministry. Jesus, God in human flesh, the God of the Bible, the, the scriptures are continually affirming the dignity and the value of women. There are different roles, of course, different roles for men and women which complement one another according to God's design, but it seems like this is a very appropriate time to highlight the reality that when the God of all creation came down to the earth that he spoke into existence, he came and not only preached to, but co-labored with both men and women alike. This is not a man's religion. And here in Philippi, Paul picked up right where Jesus left off, right? It makes sense then that Paul would go on to write, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This was his stance. This is how he viewed women. Look at the end of Romans sometime. Look at the names listed in Romans chapter 16. You'll see supporters of Paul, a, a list of people who were invaluable to the ministry of Paul. And most of them were women. I commend you to our sister, uh, you to our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. 
for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Priscilla, fellow worker in verse 3. Mary in verse 6. Tryphena and Tryphosa in verse 12. Any of you ladies have twins? We already have their names picked out. <laughs> Tryphena and Tryphosa. That actually means delicate and dainty in verse 12. Then we see Persis in verse 12. The mother of Rufus was so dear to Paul that he calls her his mother as well. Verse 13. Julia and the sister of Nereus in verse 15. Judaism says, don't talk to women in public, not even your wife. And Paul says, well, this ain't Judaism. Not even close. You cannot put new wine into old wineskins because the wineskins will burst. You can't put Judaism into Christianity because the church will burst. So Luke says in verse 13, we sat down and spoke with the women. We engaged in conversation with the women, meaningful, fruitful conversation. And then he goes on in the first part of verse 14 to tell us about one of these women in particular. And it's at this moment we begin to see clearly the reason for God's sovereign orchestration of all the events leading up to this moment and getting these guys to Philippi. He says, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Now Luke says she's from Thyatira, right? An ancient kingdom which was previously known as Lydia. This leads many commentators to believe that this woman's name was not Lydia, but rather she was known as that lady from Lydia or that Lydian lady. But sometimes I think these scholars get too bored and they just look for things to pick apart. I'm going to go with what Luke says right here and in chapter 20. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. Lydia was, again, a God-fearer, not a Jewish proselyte or convert. We've seen him before, an Ethiopian eunuch, Cornelius, and his household. Likewise, this woman was probably a Gentile, though we don't know that for sure. What we do know is that she had a pious reputation among those who knew her, She apparently loved the God of Israel. Now, interestingly, Luke tells us that she was a seller of purple goods. This is another nod to the affluence of Philippi. Only the upper class wore purple. Mostly royalty wore purple. It was highly sought after, but the dye was very hard to obtain. Yet Lydia was in the purple dye business. Later on, we'll see uh, in another demonstration of God's providence that she offers up her home for ministry where these guys would end up for staying for some time. Now, I don't know if that's days, weeks, or months. We don't know that. But next week, we'll see another visit to Lydia along with many brothers. However, nowhere do we see Luke make mention of a husband, which means it was very likely her own home, which she had purchased and offered up for ministry as a result of her successful business, which is yet another privilege, another advantage of living in a Roman colony, uh, even though you're living abroad. Anyhow, that's Lydia pre-conversion. I want you to see what happens next, okay? I want you to look in your own Bibles at this. You have to look at your own Bibles. Don't take my word for it. Look at these next words. You have to look at your own Bibles, otherwise we're going to get all kinds of emails and comments saying I'm going out of my way to read my personal convictions regarding the doctrines of salvation into this passage. Of course, I would never do that. But look at verse 14. Okay, these are Luke's words now, right? 
Under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, right? Look at your Bibles. Verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper worshiper of God. Look now. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, what does that say? The Lord did what? Opened her heart. Opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. She had heard them audibly, like you're hearing my voice right now, but now she was given the ability by the Lord to pay attention. Now, surely this must be some sort of Calvinistic translation of the Greek here. Surely that can't say what it appears to say in its plain, literal, normal interpretation, can it? I don't know. People use all kinds of different translations in here. Uh, Let's see what the NASB says. A woman named Lydia was listening. She was a seller of purple fabrics from the city of Thyatira and a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the thing spoken by Paul. Ooh, that's even more clear. Well, that's still too conservative, right? Still too conservative. How about the King James? I know we got some KJV guys in here. And I feel you. I love that translation. As has been said, if the King's English was good enough for our Lord, it's good enough for me, right? Let's see what the King's scribes said. From the authorized, 1611. And a certain woman named Lydia, seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened. She attended unto the things which were spoken of by Paul. Well, this isn't going too well for those who deny that regeneration precedes saving faith or justification. How about we go straight to some of the more openly liberal translations like the NIV? One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. They all say the same thing. Even the message which I would unapologetically encourage you to watch a football game before you spend any of your time reading, (laughs) says this. The master gave her a trusting heart. It's all the same. Latin Vulgate, Textus Receptus, most trustworthy and reliable Greek manuscripts, all say the same thing. The Lord is absolutely and totally sovereign over the salvation or conversion of Lydia. Uh, Just like he is absolutely and totally sovereign over the salvation and conversion of every man, woman, and child who has ever or will ever come to him in faith. The Lord causes men and women to be born again. You understand that? He converts them. Not us, not my words. He converts them. He appoints men and women to eternal life. We read those very words two chapters ago. Whether we like it or not, God predestines people to salvation. He calls them. He chooses them. 
And when exactly did he choose them? When they responded to the good news of some preacher and they prayed a prayer? No. From before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. 2 Timothy 1, we were saved by the gospel of God who called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. When? Before the ages began. Titus 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised when? Before the ages began. Well, who was this promise for? Well, he just told us. The elect. The elect. In the very last book of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 3, 13, 17, 20, 21, and 22, we are told of a book, the Lamb's Book of Life, which contains all the names of all those who are predestined to everlasting life in his presence in the new heavens and on the new earth. And when were the names written in this Lamb's Book of Life? Before the foundations of the world. Not based on anything they did, not based on anything they did not do, but only according to his steadfast love and sovereign grace. I'm not reading my convictions into anything. I'm just reading the text. Okay? And the, the text says the Lord opened her heart to respond, to believe, to pay attention. The regenerating work of the Holy Spirit always always precedes true and saving faith. It has to be this way. Romans 8.30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. <laughs> then the justification comes. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. God knows who's saved because he chooses who will be saved. He then calls us, he regenerates us so that we can respond in faith and repentance and obedience, which we couldn't have possibly done in our own strength as the scriptures clearly teach that men and women were dead in their trespasses and sins. 17th century Bible commentator John Trapp said this, man's heart is naturally locked up and barricaded against God till he, by his mighty spirit, makes forcible entrance, beating the devil out of his trenches. We were dead, dead. But God makes those whom he calls alive, doesn't he? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And this is a vital truth, in my opinion. It reveals the very character and nature of God and only solidifies the reality that salvation is by grace alone and that our election is unconditional. Now, God is absolutely sovereign over salvation. There is no denying that. But we still have a responsibility to believe, right? Of course. 
person will be judged if they don't believe the gospel of Christ. They will be held fully accountable for not believing in the gospel of Christ. Now, how do those two things work together? God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Well, I've told you before. I'll tell you again. I have no idea. (laughs) I don't know. But I can tell you that we absolutely have the responsibility to believe, to have faith, to come to Christ, because that's what the scriptures say. But this is very important. When determining who gets the credit, we mustn't be so foolish to neglect the ultimate source of our saving faith and subsequently attribute all the glory to God. This reminds me of Isaiah chapter 66. When the Israelites were marveling at their own work of building a temple for God, God says, heaven is my throne, the earth is the footstool for my feet. Where then is a house you can build for me? Where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. So all these things came into being, declares the Lord. You didn't create this place. Are you kidding me? It was me. I made it all. That's my material. I made you. I can't be contained in a building made with human hands anyhow. In the same way, we don't create or manufacture the faith that justifies us or even activate the faith that justifies us through our own power. But the author and perfecter of faith supplies his faith as a gift to those whom he calls after he opens their heart to be able to receive it and exercise it. Jesus himself knew this. This is why he said, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Here in Acts chapter 16, verse 14, we are given a glimpse into that drawing process in action. We're seeing it right here. As God the Father, through the regenerating power and work of his Holy Spirit, draws this woman unto himself, reconciling her to himself for all of eternity. And it started not with her believing the word, but by having her heart transformed and prepared to pay attention to and or respond to his word. Do you see it? Do you see that there? The Lord opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart. Now someone says, well, these are just English translations. Well, I don't know Greek personally, but I did look it up. And you can too, blueletterbible.com. Very good. They even tell you how to pronounce the words. Dianoigo. Dianoigo. To open by dividing, drawing asunder, to open thoroughly what had been closed. That's what he did for Lydia's heart. Then she paid attention. Then she responded. Why do so many people fight this? Why do they fight this? The Lord opened Lydia's heart. Dianoico. This isn't the only place it says this. Far from it. In the Old Testament, it was used to describe Yahweh's opening up the womb for the purpose of bearing male successors. And Luke 24, we are told of two men walking on a road to Emmaus. The Lord Jesus Christ, now resurrected, appears to them and asks them what they're talking about. And one of the guys says, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And I love it. He says to them, what things? 
I say to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests, our rulers, delivered him up to be condemned to death, they crucified him. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women from our company amazed us. Another nod to the value of women, right? First witnesses of the resurrection from the dead. Some women of our company amazed us. He talks with them a bit more, and as they drew near to this village to which they were going, he ends up staying with them a bit longer. He was at table with them. He took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And the text says their eyes were opened. Dianoigo. And they recognized him. He vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road? While he opened to us, Dianoigo, the scriptures? They go immediately to Jerusalem and they tell the disciples, Christ is risen. He's alive. Luke then goes on to tell of Jesus appearing to his disciples, and yet they still don't believe. So he says, why do you doubt? Of course, he knows exactly why they doubt. But he tells them, look, touch me, see me, hear me. I'm a real person. I'm not a spirit. I'm not a ghost. I'll show you. Get me some of that fish over there. I'll eat it right here in front of you. That's what he does. Then in verse 44, he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then in verse 45, he what? Opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I don't want you to leave this place without having this truth etched on your very souls. It's the sovereign Lord who opens our eyes to see. It's the sovereign Lord who opens our minds to understand, and it's the sovereign Lord who opens our hearts to believe. Not ourselves, not other men. Jesus said, all the the Father gives me will come to me. Not the other way around. Not all who come to me the Father will give me in this context. Whoever comes to me, he says, though, I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. But raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. I will raise Him up on the last day. There you go. Divine sovereignty. God gives. Human responsibility. We come. But let me make this perfectly clear. Have you come to Him this morning, my friends? Have you come to Him? If so, it's only because the Father drew you. Are you coming to Him now? As we speak, if so, it's only because the Father is drawing you. It's only because the Father is drawing you to himself by his sovereign grace alone. So I bid you, come. Come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory, all the glory for the great things he has done. Luke says, 
One who heard us was a woman from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And what was that? <coughs> what was said by Paul? Well, the gospel that we just explained. Sinful man and a holy God being reconciled through faith alone in the finished work of Christ on the cross at Calvary. The resurrected Lord who lives, thereby allowing Lydia to live as she had been made alive together with Christ. And being made alive, she believed. She was saved. She was justified in the sight of a holy God. She was the first convert in Europe, by the way, this woman. Well, how do we know that? How do we know she was converted? Come on. Well, in verse 15, Luke says she was baptized. Now, we know the apostles wouldn't baptize a false convert, right? Remember back, uh, back in Acts chapter 8, Simon Magus? They could sniff out a fraud, no question. But this woman was no fraud. Okay, Lydia, like Mary of Bethany, she loved the Lord Jesus Christ. She sought to publicly declare with all her household that he was both her savior, savior and her master. She was baptized, symbolically displaying her identity, new identity with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. Like all true converts, her faith was evidenced by obedience and good works, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. After she was baptized, she and her whole household were also saved by grace through their own faith given them by the sovereign Lord. She says this, she says, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. Luke says she prevailed upon us. They did, in fact, judge her faithful because she was faithful. She listened to their words and he listened to her words. They listened to her words. And in the providential orchestration of the Lord Most High, the home of this industrious woman would go on to become a hub for future missionary work. And it all started right here with this woman. In this prayer meeting next to this flowing riverside as the Lord brought her from Philippi to paradise by his sovereign grace alone. And again I ask, is this true of you this morning, my brothers and sisters? Have you been made alive together with Christ? Have you been rescued out of the slave market of sin and death? Have you been set free from the bondage of your own sin nature? Have you been granted everlasting life in the presence of your creator? Has your heart been drawn asunder, divided, opened thoroughly, purified, and prepared to receive the marvelous truths of the gospel of grace? Have you, by his grace alone, been given the ability to pay attention to, to give heed to, to respond to his word through the strength of his spirit? I pray this is true of you this morning. I pray you are among those whom the Father has drawn to himself. I pray that you are among those whom he has given to the Son. He is forgiven of your, you of your transgressions against him, sparing you from his eternal wrath. I pray that you are among those whom he has predestined unto salvation from before the very foundations of the world. That you are among those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And you say, well, how do I know if I'm one of those? Obey his word. Come to him. 
hear the voice of the good shepherd and respond to his call. Follow him. Look upon Christ. Rest in the finished work of Christ on Calvary. Believe in his gospel. And then, like this faithful woman and those of her household, spend the rest of your earthly life and your eternal life thereafter giving him all praise and all the honor and all the glory for what he has done for you by his grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's have Noel coming up here and uh, the music team and lead us in another song of... We hope that you have been ministered to through this week's exposition of God's Word. If you would like more information about our church and services, please visit our website or email us at info, that's I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Again, that's info, I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Lakewood Bible Chapel.